This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. Hello, beautiful people. How are you? Great to see you on YouTube or on podcasts. On this episode, I brought on Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. He is someone who specializes in understanding the term deconstruction. He is a philosopher, and so I brought him on to kind of give us some of the foundational terminology and perspective and thoughts regarding what is deconstruction actually. A lot of us use the term to describe uh, a dismantling of our faith or a renegotiation of it, but uh, where does the term come from? What's it actually mean? This is a very, like, uh, academic conversation, meaning the homeschooler is listening to the academic talk. But I really recommend putting on your thinking cap and listening closely because I really appreciated how Bruce navigated the origins of uh, deconstruction, uh, who Derrida was, why it matters, and really, again, how much of our evangelical culture got wrong about Derrida in their attempt, from my vantage point, to really uh, disparage the deconstruction explosion that happened in their own uh, circles. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to support our work, you can like this, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, you can subscribe to our podcast or give us a rating and review. That all helps. And of course, we are a nonprofit organization trying to hold space for thousands of people as they navigate leaving the fundamentalist basement of evangelicalism and trying to find better paths forward in their faith. Right now, we are trying to fundraise for our next round of cost need that we have as we continue to expand the work that we do. And we're looking for people who are willing to donate $20 a month. That's what we're looking for. Uh, we believe that many hands make light work and a $20 a month donation recurring really helps us plan for the future. All donations made in the US are tax deductible. You can get the link in our show notes, sign up, and we'd appreciate it. All right, friends, without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Bruce. Talk to you later. All right, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson on the podcast with me. It is great to have you, Bruce. Thanks for making time. As we both know behind the scenes, this has been um, uh, a real bear to navigate, yeah. getting our time zones connected and then our technology to work. So this is, the, the I think, the, the third attempt now to get this podcast recorded. So thanks for making time. It means a lot. 
It's a pleasure to be on your program. Awesome. Well, let's start here. Why don't you give us some background to who you are? We're talking about deconstruction today. Uh, I have a lot of questions because you actually teach this stuff like in academic circles. Before we get there, did you grow up in Christian circles and how did you end up doing what you do now? Oh, that's a very long question. I don't know if I can get all the way to how to how how I'm I got to where I'm doing what, what I'm doing now. Um I grew up in a very evangelical family. Um, my father was a pastor um, at a number of different churches. What I can remember is really a little bit of our time when we still lived in Minnesota, and then I can remember my time when we lived in Southern California, and then we moved back to Illinois and moved to Texas. And then, um, so at, down in Texas, my father was teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary. And then we moved back to uh, the Chicago area. My father took a job as the, I don't know what he did directly, but he became the vice president for academic affairs at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So that's that's sort of that story. And then what happened is I went off to college, uh, ended up studying philosophy, realizing that mm-hmm. there was a lot of really interesting stuff there, and that this could be something I could do for the rest of my life. And... Um, mm. One one thing that I'll mention, but it's a little it's a little difficult. Um, there's a huge difference between the way philosophy is done in the English speaking world, mainly the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia. This is changing, uh, but there used to be what was called analytic or Anglo-Saxon philosophy, and then continental philosophy mm. was the kind of philosophy done on the continent of Europe, so mainly in France and Germany and Belgium. And so I happened to read a review by this guy named Hans-Georg Gadamer, who wrote a book called Truth and Method. And I thought, as soon as I read that, I thought, this is the guy I want to study. Um, and eventually mm-hmm. I did go to Belgium to study at the Katholika Universität Leuven. And then I was lucky enough to get uh, support to go to Germany. And uh, Gadamer was still alive. At that point, when I first met him, he was 89. And then when I worked with him, he was 90 to 92. Wow. Um, he was born in 1900, died in 2002. So, you know, experienced the t- Titanic sinking and was alive for 9-11. It's pretty, pretty wide range. Wow. Holy moly. Okay. I, I need to ask you a question because you just blew my mind. I don't even think that you knew, you know that you did. You mentioned that philosophy is practiced differently in the English speaking world compared to, I guess, predominantly non-English speaking worlds. Europe is what you cited. Can you help me understand that? Because, you know, I, I think this is another moment for me where I'm thinking, right, the world doesn't revolve around my English speaking box, but I just think philosophy is philosophy. Can you unpack that for maybe a minute and just kind of help us as an audience understand the difference? One way of getting at it would be like this. Analytic philosophy tends to be more mathematical. It's very much about analyzing things, breaking things down into, you know, divisions, you know, this, 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 and this. Um, While people in continental philosophy do that too, Mm -hmm. generally people liken continental philosophy to something more like poetry. So they go in these two different directions. One seems kind of hyper-analytic, thus analytic philosophy, and the other is more of a reflection. Now, let me give you one more piece of information that I think will help a lot. Um, and it will be useful once we get to deconstruction and Derrida and all that kind of stuff. 
So there was this guy named Edmund Husserl. And in 1900-1901, he published a book called The Logical Investigations. You've never heard of that book, but Husserl and the project that he set up pretty well has dominated the entire 20th century of continental philosophy. So almost everything – And continental is, is – is that, is that American? Is that English-speaking no, so or not continental English-speaking? Continental is continental. Uh, on the continent of Europe. So that's why – so I went to Belgium to study, which is kind of in between you know, France and Germany, and then I ended up in Germany. Let me put it this way. If I were to show you a page or maybe two or three of one sort of philosophy and then show you the other sort of philosophy, it would be immediately clear. Mm. So one of the things that Husserl insisted on, particularly um, as laid out in the logical investigations, is that we have to start with experience. Husserl said, look – Enough with theorizing, enough with, you know, sort of armchair, you know, thinking about stuff. Let's start with the real stuff, like the things we experience as we experience them. And then the, the attempt is to try and make sense of that experience and to look at it very carefully. And you might think, well, why would we need to do that? And of course, one of the Husserl's basic assumptions here is that many things that we encounter on a daily basis, we never stop to think about. And so Husserl says, Let's yeah. start there. Let's start with thinking about the way things actually occur and the way phenomena appear to us, to use his technical language. And he, you said that really much of how we experience philosophy today in the 20th century is based on this guy's writings and, and concept of we have to start with experience? Yes. So in continental philosophy, which is practiced in certain universities in the United States, it's practiced primarily, obviously, on the continent of Europe, but there are people who live in Germany right. who do analytic philosophy now. And so it's the, things have gotten a, a little mixed up. Back when I was a student, you know, it was this kind of dichotomy was pretty much firmly in place. And now it's no, it's not as obvious. So. Let me ask you this thing. Again, I, I know I didn't plan on going here, but I just think it's so important because at least for me as someone who just grew up not mm -hmm. in this world at all, you just assume certain things and then someone like you says, actually, <laughs> it's not maybe as clear as you think. Um, the analytical versus continental, I guess, you know, divide – are they at odds with each other, broadly speaking, where it's like, well, that analytical philosopher is, is, is really not that intelligent. They're like, no, those continental philosophers are not like, or, or is it more of like they're in conversation together, kind of like riffing off of each other? Like how, how does that work between You know what? Two? I would love to say it's the second one, but it's not. It's the first <laughs> one. Darn. And um, okay. let me just say without going into any more detail, when I got hired to teach at Wheaton College, I was the first continental philosopher they had ever hired. And let's just say those initial years were not easy. Mm. All right. Fair enough. Yeah, th th this is helpful to think about uh, even before we we start kind of the deep dive on this term deconstruction, um, just already that, hey, there are two, I guess, broad schools of thought uh, and they they diverge pretty severely in the world of philosophy, which leads me maybe to write to our segue here. This term deconstruction, and I'm I'm going to say some things that you just need to correct me on because I, I am at a very low level view here of these terms. I'm under the impression that um you know this person Derrida Derrida is that how you say his last name Derrida thank you it's kind of like the father of this concept in the philosophical world. Obviously, in my experience, I never I never even heard of the term 
until after I started the New Evangelicals and found the term deconstructing uh, in like yeah. the online yeah. space as a way for, for people to, to describe a breakdown, you know, pulling apart of what they believe and and kind of reexamining it, right? This term deconstruction, does it fall more on the continental side or the analytical side of philosophy? Where does Derrida land on that? So Derrida is very squarely a um, continental philosopher. He is the kind of person okay. who has read people who are not continental philosophers, but Derrida was squarely a continental philosopher. So there are a number of different ways that I can answer your question. Let me start with this. I mentioned Husserl earlier for a reason, not just because yeah. it had to do with me. Um, namely, Husserl has this term, Abbau, A-B-B-A-U. So Bauen in, in German, B-A-U-E-N, Bauen is to build. Abbau is to unbuild. And that's the idea that Husserl has in terms of when we look at whatever it is we're trying to understand, we unbuild by sort of taking apart its components to understand what's going on. Now, Heidegger comes along. Heidegger was a student of, of Husserl. Heidegger is a whole new complication. Heidegger comes up with the term destruction, which looks exactly like the word destruction in English, except with a K in place of the C. Um, but what he meant by that was we need to take philosophy from the past and ask the kinds of questions that they were trying to answer. So, there, so um, Heidegger makes this point that sources from the past both cover over and reveal. They conceal and they reveal. And so Husserl, or Heidegger, well, actually both of them say, we need to read more carefully to find out what's going on in the text. Derrida comes along. And in fact, um, I was just reading, there's, there's something that he wrote called Japanese, a letter to a Japanese friend. It's, uh, eight pages and it's actually pretty simple. And basically he's trying to explain why deconstruction. He basically says, look, I looked at Heidegger's idea of destruction. That just seems far too negative. And so I wanted a more neutral mm. term. And he said, I, I thought of the word deconstruction. And he said, I wasn't sure if it was a word. And he said, then I looked it up in the big dictionary. And yeah, it was a word, but hardly anybody used it. And what it meant in the big dictionary yeah. was, you know, for instance, to uh, disassemble motor vehicles in order to ship them or, you know, to take things apart in order to rebuild that kind of thing. So that's where it comes from. Okay. Um, so in, when I first discovered this term, uh, people, I call them gatekeepers, people who are evangelical pastors, yeah. you know, they kind of latched onto it and they immediately picked up on Derrida on the very, I think, you know, um, uneducated, uh, angle, which is also mine to be fair. And would just say things like, well, deconstruction comes from this, this, you know, this postmodern philosopher, uh, Derrida, who just wants you to destroy everything either, and words have no meaning and nothing matters. And it's all subjective. I mean, who, what is Derrida's like real take on what deconstruction actually is? Is that what it is for him? Is it just, hey, things don't have any meaning unless we give it meaning. So let's just tear apart everything. And, you know, everything's relative. Is that kind of his take? I mean, give me, give me the academic version here of what Derrida's getting at with this idea of deconstruction. So, um, everything that you've said so far is incorrect. But let's start with that, which is, which is fine. <laughs> you know, it's a good place to start. Um, because I, 
It's sure, helpful sure, because yeah. I think that what you've just articulated is kind of like the layperson's, you know, sort of, you know, understanding of what this term means. Totally. Yeah. So um, something that's important for you to understand um, is because of the analytic continental divide, Derrida, when he was first getting popular back in the 60s and then in the 70s and 80s, he was being read largely in literature departments. Now, the problem with people who've studied literature is they've never studied Edmund Husserl, and they may have read some of Heidegger, but they don't understand that when Derrida comes up with this word deconstruction, for people like me, it's kind of uh, old news. <laughs> You know, like, yeah, Husserl came up with this idea and then, you know, Heidegger extended it. Mm -hmm. Um, So deconstruction is not intended, according to Derrida, to be a method. He explicitly says it is not a method. Mm -hmm. He explicitly says it's not analysis. He explicitly says that deconstruction happens apart from anyone wanting to deconstruct or not deconstruct. <laughs> that is true. Now, let, let me let me give you an example that will, I think, cause your brain to, to kind of spin around. Great. Here's my favorite example of deconstruction. All right. Bible commentaries. Think about what is a Bible commentary. You're looking at a particular passage, say somebody's written a commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, it's trying to look at, you know, chapter five, see how that relates to, you know, chapters one through four and how that relates to the rest of the book, et cetera, and et cetera. So deconstruction in this case is here's what Matthew says. Now, it seems that what Matthew's getting at is blah, 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 blah. And anytime you have the it seems we're, that Matthew is getting at kind of question, that's deconstruction. I mean, a, a different example, very, very, you know, kind of like basic is if you were sitting in a classroom and the professor just said something, and you missed it, and you said to somebody next to you, what did he say? Now, if the person just simply reproduced, you know, he said, blah, 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 that isn't really deconstruction. But if he says, oh, he was just talking about the homework, you don't need to worry about it. That's deconstruction, because Mm. it's already a kind of interpretation of the text. It's deciding, you know, sort of what that text does and what its function is. So... I'm going, to re- I'm, going to, I'm going to repeat that back to you. That's how I learn. So what you're telling me is that deconstruction is when you start trying to read meaning back into the text. Is that, is that the idea? So the, the, the question – so the, the difficulty here is that the, the, the text has meaning, but the text only has meaning because it was written by somebody who was able to mean – Right. You know, you, you write down something and you mean something by what you've written. Yeah. And then it's picked up by someone who's able to interpret. Right. If you didn't have somebody who's able to mean to write something or didn't have somebody to interpret that writing, because the writing is kind of the intermediary. It's the right. thing that's the sort of the go-between, you know, the, the author and the, and the reader. Okay. So what, what, all right, let me do this. What another example be like this, the story of the good Samaritan, mm-hmm. we all know it in the scriptures, you know, a, a lot of times what we do is we read that story and we go, okay, who are the people in our context who this would apply to, right? Is that an, uh, a mode of deconstruction or de- or doing that where we're, we're taking what maybe the meaning or whatever the author meant and saying, okay, what does it look like now to apply this concept, whatever the author is getting at to now this new context that you know is 2023 America. Is that, that an is example a, of that? Superb example of that. 
You did it. I did it. <laughs> okay, so I mean, listen, I don't want to oversimplify things. You're the philosopher, so please make things complicated if they if they need to be. Um, but it sounds like what you're saying is that at maybe its core, this idea, at least as far as Derrida meant it, is that we we oftentimes read things and perhaps, especially when maybe it's something that isn't natural or directly to us, we reinterpret things to make sense to our current cultural moment in our current context. Is is that kind of the concept we're talking about here? Yes, that's the the, the basic concept. And and actually it was this idea that I wanted to study uh with Gadamer about. Um because Gadamer wrote a whole book, it's about five hundred pages called Truth and Method. Uh it's a book I've taught many, many times. And um interestingly enough, every time I teach this book Students have a kind of a revelation. You know, it's, it's like they're seeing something in a new way. And much of what Gadamer is talking about is how is it possible for me living in the 21st century to read something that was written 2000 years ago in another language, a language that I, I know how to read at least well enough to, you know, get by. Um, I'm not a New Testament scholar or anything like that. Um, what does it mean to read that text as a person who is in the 21st century? And right. Gadamer actually, you know, it, it, it takes a long time to kind of explain how this all works. But what Gadamer comes up with is this metaphor of what he calls the fusion of horizons. Your horizon can fuse with the horizon of Plato or Paul or, you know, pick whoever you want. Uh, could be somebody more recent than that, too, of course. And that's what Gadamer says happens when we understand one another. Gadamer's not saying we ever have any anything like a perfect understanding, um, mm. because I, you know, even as I'm talking to you, I can't get into your mind. I can listen to what right. you say. I can, I can, you know, see the the kind of clues on your face like if you if you look like you're confused or if you're you know you're happy or <laughs> like that was funny or whatever. Right. Um right. but I can't get into your mind and that's just the way it is for all of us. Um but we do think uh, so I don't I don't have any questions. We do think that language is sufficiently communicative such that I can have a conversation with you. Um it's not sufficiently communicative in the sense that you understand perfectly 100% of exactly what I'm saying. And right. um, so it's in, it's in this kind of slippage that, that there's always, you know, a kind of problem. And that's just the way communication goes. Well, I mean, that's why we have hundreds of different denominations and church schisms, right? Because we're trying to figure out what, what do these things mean? How do we interpret them? Mainly things passed down from dead people, right? I mean, Paul is not alive anymore. Right. He's right. dead. Uh, the authors of the Bible, at least, at least as far as how we have it today are definitely all dead. So we have to do our best, right? To, to, to right. read and to figure out what do we do with these texts, which honestly, makes a ton of sense even for evangelicals right i mean even today the reason why uh, the evangelical culture has like these pastors who are well known is because they're really good communicators mm-hmm. at helping people understand what they would think is the meaning of the bible yep. right or certain passages exactly. right um and so there is it safe to say then that whenever we're doing that especially you know if it comes to the bible in this context that we're deconstructing that we're participating in the act of you know, what Derrida would say is deconstruction. We're, we're, we're reading words 
from people who we can't ask what, what, what do they mean? And we're asking ourselves, okay, what do we do with this now? And at Scott McKnight, the Bible scholar would say in our day and in our way. That's kind of how he phrases things. Yes. Is that, is this the spirit of deconstruction? Am I capturing it here, Bruce? Yeah. And by the way, Scott is a, as an old friend of mine who used to work uh, at the same seminar where my, my father was administrator. Oh, really? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I read his book, The Blue Parakeet, a couple of years ago, and I was like, wow, this is just so helpful mm-hmm. for how I, I navigated uh, my, my at the time, pop-level deconstruction, we'll say. Um, so that does bring me, I guess, to kind of like the this moment. So I, I'm, I know you're aware because you and I connected, I think through a mutual friend. I forgot who it was who connected us. Um, and the connection was, hey, like Bruce teaches this stuff, deconstruction. He knows all about it. And it might be a fascinating conversation because I'm obviously in this world of like this pop level term being or deconstruction being used in this pop level way of, you know, uh, hey, we're, we're, we're tearing things apart. We're, we're, we're unbuilding. Uh, and we're looking at the pieces, um, and we're saying, man, I don't think this thing was built right. One of the exam, one of the analogies I use a lot is I kind of felt like I was building, um, a very complicated piece of Ikea furniture. <laughs> and then when I was like three quarters of the way through, I realized that like I had the whole thing backwards. <laughs> I'm like, dang it. I got to undo all these things and, and look at these pieces again and, and reassemble them in a different way. Uh, that's kind of one of the ways that I think about deconstruction. What are your thoughts from what you understand and know about how deconstruction has been repopularized, really, at least in our bubble, uh, and how it's being used? Like, do you think it's overall it's being used well? Are you concerned about that? Like, what what are your thoughts overall? So I I, I don't think it's being used all that well. Um, I, I, hmm. I did mention the fact that Derrida was first read by people in the literature department for another reason. So we had one reason before. Now the second reason is people in the literature departments thought that Derrida was putting forth a kind of method in which you would look for a text, you'd look into a text and you'd look for something that was wrong, an inconsistency, or um, one of the other things that is really interesting about texts is what they don't say. You know, so what they leave out, um, because often you can assume if they don't say certain things that probably the reason that they weren't said is because it would just kind of would have gone without saying. But the difficulty for us reading a text, you know, thousands of years later is that what would have right. gone without saying back then maybe needs to be said for us or maybe in fact has been lost from us because, well, it didn't get put down and people don't think that way anymore. Right. I don't know if that's helpful. So it's helpful, but let, let's go a little more like, uh, you know, um, from like, you know, the, the headspace to like the actual uh, boots on the ground. You know, wh- what is, what for you, from what you've seen, and again, we all understand that, that we all see different things. I really am curious. I think it's important for the audience to listen, right? Because what we don't want to do is we don't want to participate in the same thing all over again where we're taking terms and we're not maybe, capturing the, the spirit of them. That, that's one of our, our critiques of evangelicalism is like the, the way that we've handled Jesus in the Bible isn't healthy. So I certainly don't want to mishandle another term, right? For you, what are some of your concerns with, with how you've seen the term being used or, or have been used uh, to describe this like renegotiation of faith? So the main problem I have is that I think for most people, maybe not everyone, but 99% of people yeah. who haven't studied deconstruction, think of deconstruction as a negative term. Yeah. And it's not that it can't, 
you know, deconstruction could be used in, in a negative way, but it can also be used in a positive way. You know, so you can talk about a text and talk about things that aren't there. And then New Testament scholars can come along and say, yeah, but we now know about this thing. And that would fit pretty well with this particular passage, blah, blah, blah. Um, so th- that's my, that's my main problem with deconstruction used as, as just this kind of like tear it all down. There are other terms, mm. de- demolition. In fact, in fact, Derrida one point says, yeah, that was the problem I had with the, uh, with Heidegger's term deconstruction, deconstruction. Um, sorry, destruction. I'm sorry. I have, I have to move back from, from French to, to German to say it, right? Um, he thought that that was too negative. So he thought that deconstruction was a, a neutral p- positive term. So that, that, that's my main beef with that. That, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I, you know, I, I, so I discovered the term, like I said, about uh, two and a half years ago. And I was like December 2020, January 2021, when I discovered the world of exvangelical and, you know, this term being thrown around, deconstruction, we're deconstructing. I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, this makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, we're unpacking things. We're, we're I'm, I'm undoing what I built, right, from my mm-hmm. Ikea furniture. And, and what, what do I do? And I think that as I've went along this journey, I've realized that this term was really being used as as like a catch-all. It was really an explosion, right? Like, we're okay, we're all undoing something, and now what do we do from there, right? Or or where, where do we go from here? I have found that in my life, some people who I love and respect said, you know what? I have deconstructed my faith. There is nothing left, which is really, you know, we can say maybe I've demoed it. And I just want nothing to do with the faith anymore. I'm just, I'm walking out the front door. Like I'm, I I need other places to exist in. Maybe that aren't even religious. I just don't want to think about this anymore. Got it. Then you have some people, and I think this is more where we uh, exist as an organization where we said, well, you know, for us, deconstruction is really a renegotiation of how we relate to the Christian tradition. And, um, we're trying to to really explore it maybe for the first time beyond the basement that so many of us were in. So I I still have my pieces out. I haven't thrown them in the shredder. You know, I haven't thrown them in the trash. I I the pieces are there. But now I'm looking at maybe other instruction manuals to go with the IKEA analogy. I'm not sure where this breaks down, but the point is that you know I'm, I'm looking at other ways to assemble the furniture that might make a little more sense than whatever I was given that was hurting my back or was just causing me harm. Do you think like that either one of those could be a better way of describing this process? Because one of my, one of the things that you're saying that maybe I'm, is a disconnect for me is so far you've mentioned it has to do with mostly like how we read or renegotiate meaning out of text for our day, so to speak. Right. But I feel like this is more of like a concept, like a whole worldview. I, I am dismantling and like reevaluating does does derrida's idea of deconstruction apply to even someone's worldview or way of thinking as well or mostly just regarding words and how we interpret them so um i mentioned gadamer gadamer talks a lot about how we understand texts the fact of the matter is that everything can become a text your backyard can become a text you can interpret it, you know, you, you, you could decide that maybe the grass is a bit too long and you need to get out the mower. That would, that, that would be an interpretation of your lawn. Um, so anything is potentially interpretable as a, as a text. Um, Gautamer doesn't make that point, but the later people come along do. So yes, Derrida would think that, you know, there are all kinds of things that are texts, including all kinds of literal texts, but, 
there are many things that, that aren't texts that could be deconstructed. I want to go back to, though, if it's okay, can I go back to what you were saying just a moment ago? Please do. You mentioned the person who had deconstructed everything and walked out the door. You have to understand that uh, for somebody like Derrida, Derrida actually got into somewhat a, a bit of trouble in France because back in the 70s, there was a push in schools to do away with some of the classic texts and things like that. And Derrida's the guy who's standing up there saying, no, 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 you have to read the classic texts. You have to read them. You have to go back to them over and over and over again. So I think what Derrida would say is, oh, you've deconstructed and you've left. You probably haven't deconstructed enough. In other words, you know, you've, you've just said, okay, well, there's nothing here of value for me. Uh, boom, I'm out the mm. door. Interesting. And that would apply for anything, not just Christianity, obviously, whatever the person is deconstructing from and, and, and potentially. Yes. Yes. Huh. And so the reason uh, – so I'm, I'm trying to pick up on um, – I, I heard what you said, and I'm trying to now put that into a new category in my brain for the first time. So process, processing that out loud um, is the spirit behind that, right, that, hey, um, if you found no meaning there at all whatsoever – you probably didn't look deep enough. Is that kind of what he's saying in, in, yeah. from, from your vantage point? I think he's saying that, but he, he he's probably saying, so you have to understand that for, for people like Gadamer and, and Derrida, texts, you know, particularly cl- classic texts. So Gadamer talks a lot about the, the, you know, the classics. And he says, you know, the reason these are classics is because people keep reading them and keep getting new and interesting, you know, ideas from, from reading them because they're now reading them in new contexts. Right. Which is why, I mean, another way to put this would be you may realize that theology has to be done for every generation. Yeah. Um, in the sense that, you know, you can't just say, well, you know, Augustine said this, you know, years, years and years ago, and that's good. We don't have to talk about any more of that stuff because he already decided it. That's not how it works. That's not, not how theology works. Theology is constantly in motion. Right. And that's also something that has to be re- remembered because it's easy to think that, well, you know, Christianity has always been like 21st century evangelicalism. Well, as it turns out, no, it hasn't. Evangelicalism as a, an American right. movement goes back to maybe the 1950s, 1940s, if you, you want to push it back a little further. Um, so to assume that, you know, what we, what we see is what people have always seen is, is, in intellectual hubris, it's or hermeneutic hubris, if you would prefer. Yes, you know, I, I, it's first of all, I think that's really um, great for people for, for people to hear. I think that some of them in the audience, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and read their minds. I think some of them might, might, might unintentionally be hearing echoes of people who have used that kind of thinking to weaponize, um, shaming someone for who left. Christianity completely saying, you know, saying, well, you just didn't really get it or, or you didn't dig deep enough. And I want to interject here and say, I don't think that's at all what Bruce or in this case, Derrida, it would be saying. I think what he might be saying, though, and Bruce, please tell me if I'm wrong on this. You have full permission to correct me, is that if you leave something, at least make sure that, that you've really explored it all the way before you decided, hey, this just isn't for me anymore. Right. Is that more of the spirit behind it as opposed to, well, you if you left, you just didn't dig. You just didn't dig deep enough. And your faith was probably never there to begin with. So you're just a bad Christian. <laughs> They're kind of different perspectives. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, let me let me uh, come at this from a slightly different angle. Uh, one thing that's become really clear to me as I've been thinking in the past few years is that all of us who live in the West 
are still in really, really important ways Christian. I'm not talking about the people who go to church or even the people who believe in the Bible or even the people who whatever, you know. I'm talking about our culture has been so thoroughly influenced by Christianity as also Greek, Greek philosophy. So it's, it's kind of this double, double root. Um, but it's been so influenced by Christianity that there's a sense in which one probably couldn't just leave it even if one tried. I hope I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not drawing that too broadly. Um, but, but the reality is, is that if it weren't for Christianity, we would think very differently about a whole lot of things. Society would be built in a very different kind of way. I mean, the example that I often use is, okay, so the alternative to Christian ethics would be something like Aristotelian ethics, which sounds great until you realize that for Aristotle, there are men, and then there are women who are basically defective men, and then there are people who are men who deserve to be slaves because they were naturally born as slaves and others who just happened to be in the wrong city and got captured and now they're slaves. So, you know, I always say, say to people, it's like, well, we could go with Aristotle in which, you know, women basically are just inferior to men and then a whole lot of men are inferior because they were meant to be slaves. Or we can take Jesus' idea that, <laughs> that everyone is loved by God. Which of those would you mm. prefer? I think that's a. I think it's important because I I can imagine some people being like, "Ooh, that, that I I feel weird hearing that." Right? And I I think it's it's genuine, and I think it's it, it makes sense because a lot of us have been so, uh, frankly, just traumatized by a very specific expression of the Christian tradition that unfortunately we have found more on the side of Aristotle than we have mm -hmm. of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Right? We 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 we've heard people. I mean, even in our own cultural moment, we see right wing media pundits and how they talk about women and or people like Doug Wilson out there just saying horrible things about women. Um, and so I, I agree with you with what you're saying, Bruce, because what I hear you saying is like, Hey, listen, like, I mean, it's, does Christianity have some serious issues? Yes. But whether we like it or not, a lot of even the principles we get about freedom and about equality, um, whether they're, they're a couple degrees away or not, tie back down to some form of Christian ethics at some point in the root, no matter how far deep down you go. Um, as opposed to having a root of, you know, like you quoted, um, of Aristotle or in, in some of his, of, of his ethics. And I think that's important because I am, we are never one ever to tell people that, that they have to quote unquote stay Christian as far as how they identify with a religious perspective or whatever it is. I mean, I, I get why people run out the door sometimes. I mean, they can't wait to get out and I get it. It makes complete sense given what they've experienced in their life. I also think that for those who want to stay Christian, their, their options are not, are, are, are not just, well, either you're a right wing fanatic or you just don't have a sincere faith, right? I, I think the deeper you go, the more you explore the Christian tradition, the more ethical you do end up getting and the more concerned you are mm -hmm. about some of these things that you're talking about, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I think that for a lot of people, this term deconstruction, it, it even, I mean, maybe, we could say that, that a lot of us deconstructed the term deconstruction, right? Where we took it into our own context and said, okay, you know, what do we do with this concept? Even if, even if I wasn't aware of where I was drawing from of, of really taking something apart and really reexamining it and then deciding, do I want to stay here or not? I do share, and people know this. Uh, this is no secret. I do share your concern and critique that sometimes there are people who end up going from one fundamentalism to the other. So they were a hardcore 
Christian fundamentalists where they had the objective truth of all things, all reality, the Bible was clear, to the whole thing is garbage, it's nothing salvageable, the whole thing is absolute nonsense, and Christianity is is trash. I'm like, well, you know, you're, what you're saying is that 2,000 years of history and a wide array of, of church expressions and Christian thinking and ethics and theologians, that all of it's garbage. I just don't think anything in life is that black <laughs> or white, frankly, including good, good. this particular religion, you know? Yeah, no, it, you, that is always the, the, the best way to look at things. Don't make too many judgments in advance. Trying to Try to see, you know, what's there and see the goodness of what's there. Now, I want to go back and say, yes, I can understand people who have been in uh, – I would be comfortable using the term abusive kind of kind kind of uh, congregation or community. Um, yeah. And it may well be that for some people in, in situations like that, the best thing they can do is to leave. Yeah. And I, and I, I, I remember what I would sit down with, uh, with students. Uh, I was kind of the, I wasn't the only one, but I was kind of one of the main go-to guys. If, if people had doubts or questions or, you know, whatever. Um, and I would just try and, you know, gently help students think this through. And I would always say to them, look, at the end of the day, if you end up deciding you're not a Christian, you're an atheist, you're a Buddhist, you're whatever, that'll be fine with me. My, my only goal in helping you is to figure out who you are and what it is you believe. I'm not trying to make you believe anything that you don't believe yourself. No, I love that. I think, and I think that's important, right? I think it gives people their agency back. And again, I, I know I always speak from a particular uh, perspective, but just a lot of us experience a real loss of that in our particular stream of Christian thinking. And um, yeah, I mean, I I have a lot of empathy for people who say, you know what, like I just there's just too much. There's too much baggage attached to all this this language and like this this thing I was a part of. And ultimately, you know, it's not. I'm not the one who decides like how that all works anyway, at the end of the day, you know, like if at the center of the world is, is it a divine love that's holding us all like I'm, I'm here for it. I, I just, I really echo though your sentiment of, Hey, you know, maybe before you throw the whole thing out and you definitely can just, you know, give it a fair shake, you know, even if, yeah, maybe you had a really bad expression. I get that. Maybe there's something salvageable that is again, beyond that basement. Maybe it's in the first or second floor, or maybe you say I'm out of here. And no matter what, I think, I get it. I do think that that even this term deconstruction is kind of cooling off as far as how people use it, because I think a lot of us realize pretty quickly, like, mm, it's close, it's close, but there's nuance to it for us, right? Like, like one of my friends might be an atheist now, deconstruction, they might just say, I demolished my faith, like I, I demolished it, I took a wrecking ball to it to test it, and there was nothing left. I, I use the term now, I renegotiated my faith, or I've had a, a, um, a crisis of theology, not so much a crisis of faith, right? Just I've disentangled like words like that, that I think give a, a different image in my head of like, well, I didn't demolish it. I, my faith actually is very much a huge part of who I am. In fact, maybe I'm even more faithful now in some ways, but I had to renegotiate my relationship to all of this in order for me to stay here because it got to a point, as you well know, what's going on in the US and just, you know, there's some of this right wing stuff with Trump where I said, if, if this, if it means, if this is what it means to be a Christian, is to be someone who's in the tank for this candidate, you know, and who has these worldviews, then I got to get out of the house. Like, if this right, is all there right, is, right. show me the door. 
you know, but I think a lot of people just can't shake the whole Jesus thing. And I'm, I'm one of them, frankly. You know, I actually have a section in my first book called Graven Ideologies, which is titled Jesus the Deconstructor, <laughs> in which I actually take uh, a passage and say, this is how Jesus is deconstructing what the Pharisees say. Jesus basically says to the, to the Pharisees, you say, whoever gives to God what he would normally give to mother and father owes nothing now to mother and father because it has been given to God. And then Jesus, so Jesus repeats that. And then Jesus says, you hypocrites. And then he quotes from Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips. Um, that is as, that is as close to a deconstruction in a, in a very classical sense as you could get. And Jesus was about deconstructing all kinds of things. So one of the problems I have is that if we think that, you know, Jesus just deconstructed all the things that needed to be deconstructed, and ever since for the last 2,000 years, everything's been fine. We don't need to put on our deconstructor hats on anymore. You know, it's done. Um, I don't think it works that way. So I I, I think one can be true to the spirit of Jesus, what what, he's trying to say and what he's trying to do by criticizing people who actually say things that go right against what Jesus says. I could give you examples of specific people saying things that you, you look at it and you go, that that just does not square with Jesus. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you're a theology professor. I don't care whatever. But yeah, it just doesn't fit with what Jesus says. Yeah, hey, I'm with you 100%. And I, I, I do think um, – that you're spot on with the reality that we're in conversation, right? Like theology is this ongoing study of God. It's a conversation. We're in conversation with the past and trying to use wisdom to have a, a, a moment now that hopefully informs a better future. And I, I, I think a lot of us were taught it's just frozen. Like, hey, just read this Bible. You're good to roll. And like you said, that's just not how the world works. I mean, even even if you go back to like, you know, Augustine, right? I mean, at some point what he was saying was, Part he was layering layering on top of the conversation that he was already a part of that now we stand on. But what he said isn't canon. It's not emphatic hard cement. Maybe it's a layer, but we can build on top of that, right? Or maybe maybe we can chisel some stuff out. Given you know whatever our context might say, mm, we should rethink this thing given the moment that we're in in history. That's a, that's that's normal for anything in life, even your own life, right? Who you are. 20 years ago isn't who you are now. You tend to evolve, you change, you grow, you progress. So why is why is that not a thing, right? Like in, in this in this Christian tradition for so many of us, I think is is a great question and a fair one. At the same time, and I, I would love your thoughts on this, Bruce, as we start wrapping up, but I also don't want to be someone who goes, well, if it's old, it must automatically always be bad. It must not have any wisdom to teach us. The questions I'm asking today about maybe the problems of evil are totally new. No one's thought about them. I think there is some of that maybe in my context, some of that American individualism where we're so detached from like the conversation uh, historically, mm-hmm. where we just kind of assume if it's old, it's just probably not that wise. But if it's new, it's definitely the wisest thing. Any Any thoughts on how to navigate that tension of, we're building, but we also don't want to throw the whole thing out or just negate the past automatically. So if I were starting out with a presumption, I would start out with the opposite one. If it's old, it's probably better than what's new. If I were starting with, uh, uh, with one, sure. um, you know, I mentioned the fact that, that Derrida spent his entire career basically reading ancient texts. 
Um, yeah, he was known as you know sort of flashy and you know all this kind of new stuff. But the, but the reality is that's what he that's what he did. Uh, he first mm. uh, mastered the corpus of Husserl and Heidegger, and uh, then he started writing on all kinds of other people. One of the things that um, that Derrida says that might be useful here is Derrida says um, he gave a, a talk at a law school in New York City, and the talk is called Fourth of Force of Law, the Mystical Foundation of Authority. And in there mm. he says, deconstruction always has been about promoting justice. And Derrida then says, and justice is not deconstructible. He said all, all specific instances of justice can be deconstructed, but the concept, the ideal of justice – is not deconstructible. That's that's a kind of firm thing that can never be deconstructed. I love that. Bruce, this, this was a really enlightening and heavy-duty conversation that I think is so important for people to listen to and just process, right? And to and to think about. So I really appreciate you making time. Are, do, are you online? Like, do you have a social media presence? Do you tweet this stuff out? <laughs> I mean, can people find you? Yeah, you could find me. I have this podcast. It's called Unbecoming. And um, since there are some other podcasts that have becoming in, in, in the name, um, it's helpful if you know that my full name is Bruce Ellis Benson. And Got that it. way you can find find the podcast on Spotify and other places like that. Awesome. Bruce, it was great uh, having you on and talking to you. I appreciate your time. I'm sure we'll talk again when I have more questions about Derrida and all that good stuff. All right. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Tim. We'll talk again. All right. <laughs>